This is KVRX 91.7 Austin, and you are listening to Dialectica, an examination of the civic, political, and economic issues that matter to us all on global, national, and local levels. Dialectica is brought to you by students of the LBJ School of Public Affairs and is produced in partnership with the LBJ Journal of Public Affairs. We hope you enjoy the show. First executive order that we are signing uh, by the authority vested in me as president, the con- uh, president by the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America, in order to affect the appropriate disposition of individuals currently detained by the Department of Defense at Guantanamo, uh, and promptly to close the detention facility at Guantanamo, consistent with the national security and foreign policy interests of the United States and the interests of justice, I hereby order. In his remarks on January 22nd, President Obama provided context for three recent executive orders. The President's statement provides a multifaceted explanation for these three orders in altering a previously trademarked national security policy with a new set of principles. This trio of executive orders brings to an abrupt end a chapter in President Bush's era, a contentious issue that polarized much of the country and world. Good evening. This is Sanjeet Decca, your host for Dialectica Radio. This show will review the recent executive orders with an emphasis on the complexities that will arise with the review of the Guantanamo detainees. It is important to first understand that the ramifications of closing Guantanamo Bay are not just legal. Its closure touches upon policy analysis, political analysis, and legal analysis. Law serves as a tool to facilitate the change in policy. Although law is obviously central to it, um, it this is assuming we're distinguishing between law, legal analysis, policy analysis, political analysis. Um, Guantanamo is as much a policy and political issue, or more so, or more centrally a policy and political issue, secondarily a legal issue. The, the law enters into it as you try to figure out how to put into practice uh, one's policies from the government's perspective and to try to uh, figure out exactly what it is that makes the most sense in, in pursuing our long-term and short-term uh, strategic objectives. Uh, you've got to grapple with the law and figure out how to do that. Um, but it, it's obviously a policy question. It's obviously a tremendous political issue. This issue is, is very important to many parts of the president's uh, base, and he, he's going to hear a lot about it unless and until he shuts the place down. Um, you know, for some it's a it's a moral issue. For some, it, you know, it, it fits in that category as well. And to some extent, it's all of these things. That was Professor Bobby Chesney, one of the country's top emerging scholars in the area of national security law. He's also a visiting professor at the University of Texas School of Law. Former Judge Advocate General Officer, presently Executive Director of the National Institute of Military Justice, Michelle McClure provides us with additional insight. Whether we close Guantanamo is not the real issue. I think the issue becomes, what do we do with these individuals? And um, certainly one of the problems uh, that faces the Obama administration is, what do we do? And how do we ensure the safety of the American public as well as the rest of the world and also stick by laws that we've passed and that we've 
adhered to in the past. After a historic election victory, President Obama is hoping to use his momentum in achieving a new security policy aimed towards reasserting the United States' utilization of law in context to detainee methods and interrogation tactics. Alberto J. Mora, the former general counsel of the United States Navy, highlights the new opportunities. If the new administration uh, has uh, uh, an opportunity with detainees, it is not only to restore the, the, the previous condition prior to 9-11 of international law and international human rights and detainee treatment, the Geneva Convention, and so on, but it is perhaps to think through and establish an even stronger regime of international law that more effectively addresses and protects individual human dignity. Given that several years have passed since Guantanamo Bay first housed enemy combatants, the original reasons for its inception may have been lost among recent discussions. Guantanamo was central to the Bush administration's strategy to prevent judicial review of the legal status of prisoners. Located on Cuban territory, it is the legal equivalent of outer space, unlike military bases on U.S. territories, according to one U.S. government official. Locations were ruled out as prison sites because they fall under the jurisdiction of the federal courts. The president and the attorney general of the United States made a decision at the very outset of the war that the war on terror was different from a normal war. And, a different, and, and the idea that we should use the Article Three of the Constitution and the criminal justice system that we use for a car thief or a bank robber or a murder in the United States for terrorists wouldn't work. And so they established military commissions as the method of dealing with terrorists. The purpose being with a uh, car thief that you want to get him and punish him so he won't do it again. With a terrorist, you want to get him off the battlefield and you want to get information from him so that you know how you can stop other attacks. The people, for example, in Guantanamo Bay are UBL's, uh, uh, Osama bin Laden's uh, bodyguards. They're suicide bombers. They're terrorists. They're murderers. And these are bad people. These are not good people. In fact, we've been releasing hundreds of them, uh, and, and 11 or 12 have already turned up back on the battlefield trying to kill innocent men, women, and children. That was former Secretary of State Donald Rumsfeld on an episode of Meet the Press, explaining the makeup of detainees within Guantanamo and its intended purpose. While most Americans would agree that the world is safer with terrorists held in captivity, along the way the detainees at Guantanamo transformed into a stain on America and became increasingly controversial. I don't know that it was wrong from the beginning. Um, I mean, Guantanamo in itself. I mean, we we had to have a place to to detain individuals. Um, what it evolved into, and the the public relations nightmare that it became, was basically uh, it became associated as pretty much a continuation of the atrocities at Abu Ghraib. And I think that's where the problem came in. Is that um, not, not the fact necessarily that we were detaining individuals, especially if we did have good reason to believe that they had done terrorist activities, but the, the treatment that became associated with Guantanamo um, and the fact that the trials have taken so long to happen. Um, I don't think from the beginning anyone envisioned, uh, well, maybe some people envisioned, but um, that it was going to end up that we're six, seven years down the line and we still have only had three trials to be completed. First, let's set the environment where these enemy combatants are housed. All but one enemy combatant is housed at the United States Naval Base, Guantanamo Bay, commonly referred to as Gitmo. Gitmo is the oldest U.S. overseas base 
and the only base located in a communist country. Gitmo is located on the southeast corner of Cuba, some 400 miles from Miami, Florida. In December 1903, the United States leased the 45 square miles of land and water. A treaty reaffirmed the lease in 1934, granting Cuba and her trading partners free access through the bay and payment of $2,000 in gold per year, equating to approximately $4,000 in today's dollars. The treaty stipulates that both the U.S. and Cuba must mutually consent to terminate the lease. After the events of September 11, 2001, and during the military operations in Afghanistan, ultimately resulting in the capture of numerous al-Qaeda and Taliban detainees, the Bush administration realized it needed a place to house them. Concerns about security resulted in searching for a location outside of the combat areas. However, legal considerations also meant the ideal location would be outside of international and U.S. laws. The Bush administration decided to transfer several detainees to the Camp X-ray facility at U.S. Naval Station Guantanamo. The base was intended as a temporary detention facility for al-Qaeda, Taliban, and the other war on terrorism detainees. So, who is it that we're actually keeping inside these facility gates? Are all 242 residents hardened terrorists? I don't think even the most ardent defender of Guantanamo claims that every single person who's ever been sent there is a hardened terrorist. At the same time, there clearly are some persons, and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed would be Exhibit A, who are clearly members of al-Qaeda in the the most uh, active sense. And then you've got a spectrum of people in between. You've got everyone from former Taliban commanders and Taliban fighters to al-Qaeda members, financiers, and almost certainly, although the extent to which this remains true today is less clear, almost certainly at some point we've had people who were um, mistaken identity or not properly there in the first place. And you, you get a range of things, as one would expect with any sort of large detention population. Combatant status review tribunals were the mechanism the Bush administration settled on to determine the status of each detainee of Guantanamo. Let's take a look now at these detainees who do represent a significant threat. A lot of detainees uh, admit significant elements of a lot of what the government is alleging, um, sometimes very proudly. About 60 detainees just simply admit membership or affiliation in either the Taliban or al-Qaeda, some of them very proudly, um, some of them very excitedly. An additional 65 or so deny membership but admit facts that I think if you were sitting on the CSRT, you'd probably say that that, that's good enough for me and that they could include, you know, actually fighting, but I wasn't really a member, that sort of thing, sort of being on the front lines, a significant degree of training and affiliation. Um, Another 60 or so admit something less than that, that is, they admit maybe staying in a guest house, um, maybe attending training camps for a relatively short period of time. There's sort of some, some measure of affiliation that you wouldn't ignore, but probably doesn't by itself establish amenability to detention under the laws of war. There's another 13 or so who are exclu- almost exclusively Afghans who admit to being Taliban, but who describe themselves as impressed into, you know, generally pretty credibly, I think, it, it describe themselves as impressed into service of the Taliban. That was Benjamin Wittes, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. Mr. Wittes further highlights who is presently at Guantanamo. You get about 25 members who are sort of senior al-Qaeda leadership um, at, you know, again, of this population that went through the CSRTs. 
182 kind of lower level Al-Qaeda operatives, um, 17 members of the Taliban leadership, 93 members of sort of lower level Taliban operatives. Um, and then this plurality, which is about 240 people who I, I call them foreign fighters, that they're not, they're, they're not sort of alleged to be terrorists exactly. They're rather alleged to be people who came from outside of Afghanistan in order to fight on behalf of the Taliban, either against the United States or in its, or in its uh, conflict with the Northern Alliance, even pre-9-11. And so they're, they're sort of, they're not, there's no specific kind of intimation that they engaged or were preparing to engage in terrorist activity. On the other hand, they're sort of in, in some very meaningful sense on the other side. About 27, 25 to 27 percent of the detainees, I think you can say, are reasonably classified as enemy combatants based on their own statements. An additional small group are properly classified, in my judgment, just because the circumstances of their capture are, are, are so suggestive of belligerency that, they, they, you, that there's, no other, there's no other way to understand it. It's a very small group who are, you know, charged before military commissions, and thus, depending on what you think of military commissions, you can, you can sort of imagine them as, you know, detained pending trial. And then there's about 10% of the population where you say what they've said gives you some significant indication of a proper classification, but it doesn't get you there yet. Um, and then there's an additional 25% each that you simply the public record just doesn't get you there. You know, there's a set of allegations, there's a flat denial, and then there's another 25% where there's a set of allegations and there's no significantly responsive statement to it one way or the other. In other words, there's a very substantial number of people, about 40% or so, who you can look at the public record and you say, I really see where this detention is coming from to one degree or another. And there's a, a significant majority who you either just don't have enough information to evaluate or you can say there's, there's significant material facts in dispute um, that would actually bear on, on how you felt about the detention. Although there's a clear understanding of the makeup of detainees, there still is no path to take in addressing each detainee's individual status while satisfying the rule of law and public perception. Shortly after the inauguration, uh, President Obama issued a series of executive orders on this topic. One calls for closure of Guantanamo within the year. Another separately calls for a uh, broader review of detention policy. None of the truly hard questions about exactly what that detention policy is going to be, or for that matter, how particular Guantanamo detainees will be dealt with once Guantanamo, in order to make Guantanamo closable, none of those hard decisions have yet been made. The whole, the whole idea here is to have a cabinet-level task force, described as a series of cabinet-level task force, but it's basically just one group, um, to hash these things out. And the, and the executive order providing for all of this anticipates a six-month timeline. What do we do with the detainees? Where do we put them? Um, do we send them home? Do we send them to a third country? Do we try them? Um, if we try them, how do we try them? Now, let's take a moment to examine our policy alternatives. Perhaps a new court entirely could be created to try these detainees. Would a national security court serve as an appropriate solution? Let's see what our national security expert has to say. A new structure, in, in some call it a national security court, that would 
sort of do something like what we currently have with military detention plus habeas review, but but remove the the word military from the mix and remove the law of war foundation from it, so it sets off uh, fewer objections in that respect. Um, but that's not a popular move with everyone because depending on what you you think of when you hear the phrase national security court, some people have sort of visions of some sort of new you know faux faux court um, with only the trappings of justice but not the substance of it. Um, the devil is in the details. The next policy alternative hits a little closer to home. It entails actually bringing detainees to U.S. soil for federal prosecution. If Khalid Sheikh Mohammed were released into the United States, I certainly would not want to be living next door to him. Uh, on the other hand, if the Chinese Uyghurs end up released in the United States, uh, I don't know. It's not, it's not as obvious that there'd be a danger. Um, on one hand, uh, they, they've done nothing to indicate that they're hostile to the U.S., and indeed the government has determined that they're not hostile to the U.S. and therefore could be released if we can find an appropriate place for them. You know, On the other hand, they, they have received military-style training at uh, al-Qaeda-sponsored camps, and so they have certain skills. I guess the idea is they have skills, but not the particular anti-U.S. motive. Um, but let's be realistic. Nobody is going to be entirely able to say with any certainty what would happen in any one instance. There's an element of risk involved in all the possible choices here. I favor sending them to the federal court system primarily. Um, one of the problems with sending them to military court is that usually, unless you're talking about a capital offense, in military courts, the statute of limitations is five years, which is run from uh, most of the detainees that we're talking about, so it would be difficult to try them. And the, the fact of the matter is, by and large, the rules for civilian federal court are identical in many, in many ways to the military courts. And so um, if we want to have the most open and the most accessible courts, then civilian federal courts, um, as we've seen with the, the first World Trade Center bombing, have been adequate um, ways of, of trying these individuals. The Obama administration is, is not interested in the, in the wholesale admission of large groups of detainees into the U.S. It's more of a, um, if, if anything, it would be in a few isolated or small number of instances. Some individuals uncomfortable with bringing detainees for federal prosecution on U.S. soil have advocated for a more hardline approach, preventive detention. But what exactly is preventive detention? A number of folks um, from both sides of the political spectrum in some cases have said that we should have is some sort of preventive detention, that if we go back to the Geneva Conventions applying to these detainees, then legally we can hold them until the ceasing of hostilities. When that will be is anybody's guess, of course, but um, that's another option. Military detention during time of war, you know, think of the... 100,000-plus POWs in the United States, um, German, Italian, and so forth, um, they're all being held on a preventive basis. They're all soldiers of the enemy, and the presumption is they would continue to fight for the enemy if they weren't incapacitated, so they're being held in preventive detention. Um, in some states, sexual predators are held in preventive detention through a civil commitment process, um, separate and apart from any punishment they receive from their past acts, on the explicit grounds and they might cause harm in the future. Another option to consider is repatriation, or returning a detainee back to their homeland to let their own home country decide their fate. The groups of people that we have left at Guantanamo fall uh, nationality-wise largely into, into um, 
three groups, which is people from all over the world whom we want to return, um, but whose countries we fear will torture them, um, and therefore we don't return. So the Uyghurs, certain groups of Libyans, um, they're, they're sort of from all over the place. Um, Yemenis. Um, the, the Yemenis are the overwhelming plurality of Guantanamo now, and the reason quite simply is that we depopulated Guantanamo of Saudis, um, because the Saudis developed this program that the military had very a, a lot of confidence in of, of sort of demobilizing people and kind of they were detaining some of them they were I, I hate this word re-educating some of them um, they, they were marrying off a bunch of them it's, it's, it's kind of a very elaborate program they were giving people good jobs and uh, the military developed a lot of confidence in this program and over over the course of 2007 essentially emptied Guantanamo of all Saudis whom it did not mean to prosecute in military commissions, there is no similar confidence in the Yemeni government. Um, and the result is that Yemeni detainees, many of whom are uh, accused of much, much less than what, that what than Saudi detainees who have gone home and are now free are still in detention. Uh, this is actually a huge diplomatic problem. And there's something similar with a bunch of the Afghans. There will also be an accelerated schedule of repatriations to the extent that that's possible, um, although it's, it's not clear how easy that's going to be. Um, what may take the full six months to develop is those hard cases where they can't be prosecuted or safely released. One final option to consider is to rehabilitate the detainees in an effort to successfully reintegrate them back into society. But how realistic is this strategy? Certainly, the Saudis have the most developed program. It is a it is a reintegration, and I guess you could describe it as a deprogramming type of program. The idea is to to introduce moderate views and to provide a stable uh, economic framework for for these former. It's not just former detainees from Guantanamo by any stretch. It's it's largely uh, person extremists captured in Saudi Arabia who they put into their own program. Um, you know, the truth is, you you can't have any hundred percent perfect system. This system may actually have quite a bit of benefit. Um, we can't expect it to work in every instance. And the question becomes, again, how much risk do you want to tolerate? And how, do you have enough information about the efficacy of this system in order to make reasonably informed judgments about the amount of risk you are taking if you are going to rely on this system? As we move ahead, it's important to consider the broader policy implications closing Guantanamo will have in our conflicts with Iraq, Afghanistan, and smaller campaigns in Pakistan. Our national security strategies are intertwined in the Middle East, and as such, we can anticipate a so-called Gitmo effect. What challenges will this bring to the new administration? So one of the things that complicates the Guantanamo closure issue is that if, if the administration were to forswear detention as in military detention entirely in sort of a broad sense of forswearing having access or having the right to use it for some categories of detainees, you've got to bear in mind that at least a handful, at least some, but certainly not all the detainees there, were captured in a combat zone. And while it may be that the administration would happily forswear and military detention as to everyone at Guantanamo today is simply part of ending that particular problem, uh, it's certainly not a forswear military detention in Afghanistan and in the Pakistan border region um, as as the president made clear, we're not we're not 
winding down our operations there, we're uh, spinning them up further. We're going to have more troops on the ground there. We're going to be more involved in activities in Afghanistan. And, you know, we currently hold some 600-plus detainees in U.S. custody at Bagram Air Base. We're building a new facility there. The expectation will be more detainees rather than fewer in the future. There is no question our detention policy is in drastic need of reorganization. President Obama's administration must address prior controversy as a result of holding detainees in Guantanamo. Obama's administration will consider all of the methods discussed. However, there is no clear solution. The nation is moving in the right direction in closing Guantanamo, but the path and the necessary compromises pose challenges and continued risks. If not to the security of the nation, then at least to the standing of this nation of laws in the global community. Dialectica has been brought to you by the students of the LBJ School of Public Affairs in partnership with the LBJ Journal of Public Affairs. Sources for our show can be found on our website, which can be accessed through kbrx.org. Any opinions offered on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the LBJ School of Public Affairs, the University of Texas, or KBRX Student Radio. Thank you to our producers and our guests, and remember, you are listening to KBRX Austin.